Hello and welcome to the Simungo's podcast. This is episode 69. Today's subject is frailty in the emergency department and our speaker is Patrick Boreski from Canada. Now, as always, you can watch this lecture for free in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Now, just before we play the audio from that lecture, we got Patrick on a call to give his top five pearls of wisdom for emergency clinicians. I hope you enjoy this lecture. So I'm here with Patrick Boreski, um, who's very kindly come on the call uh, with me today. We're about to play his wonderful lecture from the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine. But you're joining me today, Patrick, uh, to give me your top five pearls of wisdom in geriatric emergency medicine, which is a particular interest of yours, I know. Before we get to that, Patrick, do you mind just giving our listeners a little background to you, where you are in the world, and if you feel comfortable doing so, maybe... Uh, a little interesting fact about yourself. Of course, Owen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm coming to you from Winnipeg, Canada. This is smack dab in the middle of the country. That means we're on the prairies, cold winters, epic sunsets, countless lakes, no elevation. Uh, I'm pretty lucky to have a diverse workload. I trained in emergency medicine, so that's my main gig at two tertiary emergencies in town. But I also fly with STARS Air Transport Medicine and do sports medicine on the side, uh, including being one of the team doctors for a local professional hockey team. Very Canadian. Fantastic. Uh, that is wide and varied. <laughs> yeah, interesting no kidding, life. Eh? Fantastic. Uh, you asked about an interesting fact, though. I, I joke about this, but I'm pretty serious that medicine uh, has been a means to an end in terms of pursuing interests in terms of cooking and woodworking. So I love my job. I can't wait till I can pick up more of these uh, side hobbies as well, though. Fantastic. They mustn't be working you hard enough where you get the time for all this. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, look, thank you very, very much, Patrick. You're really kind to join me. And I'm delighted, if you don't mind, you give a wonderful talk on geriatric medicine uh, topic. And we, um, we've asked you here today just to give uh, five pearls specifically on that kind of uh, uh, area of, of emergency medicine. So please go ahead. For sure. First of all, I think a very broad point is we should all be working on making sure that our emergency departments are accredited for care of patients of advanced age and geriatric medicine. So if you work in a site that has pediatrics, I'm sure you've likely checked to ensure you have the right gear, the correct places to assess patients. Uh, but what about patients of advanced age? Too frequently, the needs of this population is really uh, ignored or taken for granted to the detriment of their care. Um, a lot of the time, our emergencies are more friendly to the promotion of delirium than to the actual care of our patients of advanced age. Secondly, frailty is a screening tool. I talk about frailty in this lecture, and you'll have to tune in to really understand what that is. But the intent is not to confirm frailty in patients that you already suspect of a less robust health status. The point is to screen everybody over age 65. You won't know who's frail or you won't know everyone who's frail without actually checking. And frequently, it's those patients where it might not be clearly visible as they lay in the hospital bed. Those patients are at risk of falling through the cracks. Number three, familiarize yourself with the clinical frailty scale. So this is a valid and reliable assessment tool for frailty to be used in the acute care setting. No longer can we say, ah, we don't have time to be assessing things like frailty in the emergency because it's such a high stakes, you know, um, high stress environment. This is easy to do with a patient or collateral. So you'll have to look this up or tune into my lecture to get more information about that. Tip number four, 
understand that frailty is reversible. Now, I don't get uh, into this in my lecture, so this is a little bit of food for thought and something to look up later, but one of the main reasons to catch frailty is because there's some blossoming research showing that if you catch frailty at an earlier stage, there's actually programs that you can institute, strengthening exercises to reverse the process of frailty, reverse where you are on the frailty scale so that you can live a more robust life with less negative outcomes. And five, another sort of broad stroke, but stop the stigma of ageism by using inappropriate uh, terminology. People use terms like uh, patients with the dwindles or failure to cope or dyscopia. I swear a geriatrician somewhere in the world dies every time we use one of those words in handover. Uh, give patients the respect they deserve, right? Their presentation to an emergency room is not for a lack of effort uh, and also tempts us to premature diagnostic closure that there's no acute illness contributing to their current state of independence. Brilliant. I'm just trying to count up the number of geriatric clinicians that I've killed over the years with those terms, <laughs> but I'm going to stop. Look, Patrick, wonderful tips. Thank you very much. Let's just jump into your lecture. Hello, my name is Patrick Boresti. I'm a newly minted emergency medicine physician in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Now, if you don't know Canada well, Manitoba is one of the prairie provinces smack dab in the middle. Uh, these are actually the ancestral lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Now, I'm not sure where you are tuning into this video today, but I'm honored to have been asked to re-record a lecture that I recently gave on frailty, the what, how, and why. In terms of financial disclosures, I really have none. There was a small honorarium for re-recording this. Other than that, I am not paid to do this. Uh, what are we gonna talk about today? So first and foremost, I think we need to agree on a definition of what frailty is. I'm sure we could all blunder through some sort of understanding what this is, but coming to a consensus definition is gonna be helpful. Then let's make this presentation relative to our work. We'll talk about the prevalence of frailty and the adverse outcomes associated with it, especially in the emergency where I work. Lastly, I want to prove to you that assessing frailty is absolutely feasible in our environment, in the emergency department, or in a busy healthcare center. We'll look at a few frailty tools with good literature support. Now, part of the challenge to get people to buy into frailty-aware care is how nebulous this definition can be. Is frailty something that I see? Does frailty come and go? Are only people of older age frail? After all, this frailty talk is a uh, geriatric focus for the conference that I originally recorded this for. But the best definition for frailty that I've seen is this, a reduced physiologic reserve to adapt to health stressors. What a nice way to think about it. Age is actually not in the definition. And aging is a heterogeneous process, but I can imagine that the prevalence of frailty is increased as people age. It also isn't necessarily permanent. Patients can theoretically increase their ability to adapt to health stressors. And this is something that is already partially ingrained in what we do in the subconscious gestalt of an emergency physician or nurse or someone who works in healthcare. On the daily, we risk stratify patients based on a very similar definition to this. So then why are we having this talk if this is already something we do? I hope to convince you by the end of these 20 minutes that gestalt is not enough. Patients experiencing frailty fall through the cracks of traditional C-test scores, if that's something that you use in the emergency department for patients presented. 
Low acuity adults with frailty, as well as those of advanced age, are drastically under triaged in our current systems. There are very real outcome differences for these people, and we need to understand that and mitigate that. Let me show you some concerning statistics about frailty. 12 to 24% of adults over the age of 50 years are frail. Now, rates are quite low at 65, but escalate substantially by age 80. I also want to mention that these stats actually come from a pool of over 60 countries. This is not just Canadian or North American research, but frailty has been found to be more prevalent in low middle-income countries compared to high middle-income countries. Based on where you're tuning in from, you can make some inferences as to what you imagine your local prevalence is. Now, women, it's actually a problem more for women than men. 13 to 26% for women age 65 years or older, for men, 7 to 24%. As for adverse outcomes, falls two times increased, hospitalizations two times increased, and mortality 1.5 times increased on the low end, but many uh, pieces of literature actually support much higher numbers, including up to 22% higher mortality in people that are severely frail. Okay, so frail patients are obviously visiting us in our health system if it's this prevalent. The risk of badness is far higher than a person who is not frail or more robust. But how do we assess frailty? Well, historically, frailty assessment fell into one of three main camps. Number one, a phenotypic definition of frailty. So this could be physical criteria, weight loss, low muscle strength. The second group, a multi-dimensional assessment of frailty. This would also include other realms of assessment like cognitive psychological factors. And lastly, an accumulation of deficits definition. So these would be the signs, symptoms, disabilities, disease prevalences. Now, this is frequently defined as a uh, frailty index. So a frailty index is where you have X number of components you see how many deficits are present for a current patient. So you express that between zero and one. So one would be you have all of those categories of deficit that are defined. 0.5, you have half the deficits. That would be a less frail person. And there's established rules on what you should and shouldn't have uh, in, in terms of a, a frailty index. You obviously want items that will increase with age, but don't saturate too early. For example, gray hair, not a good idea for something to be included in a frailty index. This sounds like a fair amount of work though, right? Luckily, emergency departments and healthcare systems worldwide are always overstaffed, too many nurses available, consultants always there for us, right? No, this is gonna be challenging work if it's gonna to add to our workload. We need something that works with higher acuity patients. The goal, of course, would be to better understand a current acute illness in the setting of their pre-existing frailty. And that would also help us triage patients. So you could get a better understanding. You can triage them better and make care management decisions based on this piece of information that we're currently missing in terms of objective testing for people. If we achieve these goals and identify patients who are frail, what can a patient gain from that? Well, you can risk stratify to guide disposition decisions. You can certainly help in my role as an emergency physician. If I know someone is more frail 
and more at risk of a representation to the emergency room, perhaps that changes my decision about discharging a patient versus admitting them to a short stay unit at the hospital. It also screens for patients who would benefit from more comprehensive geriatric assessment. So what that means is you could use this as a tool to know which patients need to have more resources, more time, different teams involved to better flush out how we can mitigate their risk. Medical and surgical management decisions can optimize patient-centered outcomes. This is the big thing because what it's actually going to um, do when you look at frailty is choose independence as a priority for patients. We'll talk more about this, but part of being frail or robust is how independent you are and how dependent you are on others for care. And if we focus on that in decisions for patients, a lot of the time we're actually focused on a much more patient-centered outcome than we traditionally would be with how we care for patients in healthcare. I can imagine that a frailty assessment can lead to subsequent referrals as well. So, you know, um, physiotherapy, home care, geriatric assessment teams, perhaps it leads to delirium prevention interventions. Now, there's going to be, of course, barriers to implementing this. For one, we have potentially time uh, as limited for assessment. If you work in an emergency room like me or a busy healthcare center, you're not going to have time to devote a lot of extra time to frailty assessment or all the extra uh, assessments, the extra consults that might come from that. Your acute illness in the emergency room might also limit assessment options. You can imagine that if a patient comes in acutely ill, how does that sort of change or color their presentation compared to how they would be at a baseline in terms of their frailty? And we also need further consensus on best care practices for patients with frailty. What this means is that we have lots of research emerging in terms of how prevalent this is, how poorly people do with advanced frailty, but we don't yet have consensus guidelines on what exactly to do with that information and how we can best mitigate that risk. Lots of ideas out there, lots of implementation studies, which some of which we'll talk about, but still a ways to go. Common phenotypic frailty assessments, such as gate speed, might not make sense, both in times and space in your emergency room or your health center. Also, we talked about how an acute illness might impact how your assessment goes with a patient, right? So what tools have been developed specifically for the emergency room, which is where I work? The clinical frailty scale. So the clinical frailty scale is the main tool I want to talk about today. It's a nine-point scale that essentially takes the things that we have evolved as our higher functions as humans. Opposable thumbs, upright stature, divided thoughts and arranges the failure pattern in a sequence that makes sense clinically. There are lots of large and robust multi-center research studies showing that adults over the age of 65 years, their CFS score is associated with mortality, length of stay, ICU admission, readmission. Whether or not you work in an emergency center or just some sort of initial hub for care, wouldn't this be information that you wanted? The CFS is also the only tool that has been validated and reliable in an acute care setting. And it's based on clinical judgment of mobility, function, and cognition two weeks prior to this presentation. And there's the crux. So the collateral can come from family. I want to show you what this scale looks like here. As we talked about, it shows a sequence of failure patterns. And if this is not showing up well online because there's a lot of text all you have to do is look up clinical frailty scale 
on whatever browser you use and look at images on a web search, and I'm sure you will find this. Recent literature continues to support using the CFS in the emergency department or acute care setting, including some pretty interesting implementation studies worldwide. For example, Dr. Banerjee out of the United Kingdom, along with Dr. Simon Conroy and some other powerhouses in this field, recently published a single center study in the UK showing that increasing frailty on the CFS assessed at triage was associated with increased admission rates, readmissions, and mortality. Isn't that cool? This is also a tool that you can use at the first presentation that, or the first contact, rather, that a patient has with the healthcare system. Christian Nickel, another dominant voice in frailty research, had a publication in Annals last year showing reliability and validity for the CFS in the emergency department. Mortality, hospital admission, ICU admission, all strongly associated with where you rank on this scale you see before you. And how easy is it? It takes a minute. There actually was an interesting study showing that if you take geriatricians, who we can imagine probably some sort of gold standard for the people who should be assessing frailty, right? And then you compare them to clerks or residents or people who are very early in their training, their scores actually differ at most by one. So this is something that is certainly reliable even between healthcare providers. A few other common tools to mention. The TRST or the triage risk screening tool, as well as the um, identification of seniors at risk for the ISAR, which is actually a, quite prevalent, especially in the United States. Um, the TRST is from Hamilton, Canada. It includes cognitive impairment, mobility limitation, polypharmacy, emergency department visits. And the ISAR is not that different from that. It too takes less than two minutes to ask about things like polypharmacy site, memory, help at home. It takes less than two minutes. These are fast tools. Now, if you're tuning in from Quebec or you are familiar with our eastern um, part of our country in Canada, the Prisma 7 is heavily used there. Perhaps this is also used in your country. It's actually lacked validation uh, data for the emergency department. If you don't work in an emergency department or an acute care setting, you'll have to look up if there are implementation studies or validation uh, for Prisma 7 there but a 2021 publication showed it to be a poor predictor of adverse events in the emergency department, which is my context here in Canada. There are many other assessment tools, Interray, Silvercode, APOP. Honestly, part of the problem with getting people to buy into frailty tools is just how many are out there right now. Luckily, we're in this golden age where finally there are some tools that are rising to the top that will no doubt be carried forward. It'll be much easier to make a decision about what tool to use. The hospital frailty risk score. I wanted to mention something that comes from a little bit of a different idea. So this was developed to take any sort of interrater differences out of the picture. So it uses ICD-10 codes. Uh, if you're not familiar with that in your local context, this is basically diagnostic codes that have um, accumulated in a patient's chart online through multiple presentations. It uses those in the computer assessment, or in the computer system rather, to auto-generate a score. We're not taking any time to make this frailty score. It's just assigning it based on a whole bunch of information that is contained on the computer. Obviously, there's a validation research to do there, but a very interesting take on how you can assess frailty. 
Similarly, a frailty index was also created as a, as a sort of different technique uh, as well, using 24 variables that are commonly measured in the emergency department. So this identified increased risk for admission, prolonged hospital stay, discharge to long-term care, and 28-day mortality. And it used components like capacity to bathe and dress, self-reported mood, falls, pain, nutrition. Um, there's actually a lot of research on frailty that comes out of Canada, and this too was a Canadian score um, originally um, uh, derived by Adrienne Brousseau and Don Milady, a couple of Canadians who are interested in geriatric emergency medicine. Now, it's hard to do any sort of presentation these days without at least mentioning COVID-19. The pandemic has been a particularly interesting time for frailty research. The NHS, the healthcare group um, in the United Kingdom, proposed the CFS as an adjunct to decision-making around limited resources like ventilators and ICU beds. You can imagine this spurred a flurry of updated resources on the CFS score, like apps that make it easier to determine a CFS score. And, and you can look this up on your phone right now. There are a, a number of apps that help you score people at your fingertips. And also research to make sure that we're using the scale accurately and with the right intentions. Um, in no way am I saying that a CFS score should give you the permission as a healthcare provider to be extubating a patient who needs uh, a ventilator. But you can imagine that when you use a CFS scale to determine frailty and focus on independence as a patient-centered outcome for your care, you can make much better decisions about what a patient would want. And I can imagine that the context for people who are watching this lecture may be quite different worldwide. And you might work in a system where already you are so limited. It is similar to Canada and the US in terms of their ventilator shortages during COVID. So I think that some of this research could be uh, very applicable to you as well. This makes a lot more sense than age when it comes to determining ambulance destination, admission locations, during COVID-19 or when resources are absolutely strapped. If someone's frailty score shows that their risk of intubation with COVID is extraordinarily high, why would that patient be directed to a community site that might not have an ICU? There's a lot of interesting sort of destination decisions that can come from knowing a frailty scale from the start. This is quite interesting. So this comes from COVID research and frailty showing that if you have a score of one to three, you're you know, less frail, more robust, compared to those people of a frailty scale of four to five. Those with the frailty uh, scale of four to five have a mortality odds ratio of 1.95, almost two. And then the more severely frail, six to nine, compared to those who are one to three, mortality odds ratio of 3.1. Quite profound results. So, how can my emergency department or my healthcare center start practicing frailty-aware care? The first thing, you're already working on it by attending this lecture. Familiarize yourself with the tools. Understand the breadth of them. Decide which tool has the validation that makes most sense for your local context. Do a lit search for recent implementation studies. This is honestly quite inspiring. If you're able to look this up, in terms of, you know, I work in an emergency department, or I work in an ICU, or I work in a, in a healthcare center that doesn't have access to an ICU, 
look at implementation studies for how people have to uh, have taken frailty research or knowing a frailty scale and made some sort of system so that we can mitigate the increased risk that these patients are at. I definitely recommend initiating some sort of quality improvement project with the help of a knowledge to action cycle. If you're not familiar with what that looks like, and I apologize for the small text, I pulled this from a paper that I recently published um, about frailty aware care across different contexts. And if you work in primary care um, in, or in general practitioner uh, role, you work in ICU or emergency, or you work in a surgical context, we've basically summarized many of the tools that are available to show which are most appropriate to the different environments. The citation is on this slide. But a, uh, um, a cycle like this, the point is to roadmap measuring a problem, deciding on an intervention, determining how you will measure the effect of an intervention, and then utilize this knowledge to continue the system change and repeat the cycle as necessary. This is all going to depend on your local context and level of resources. Maybe patient screening is frail, get a polypharmacy review. Earlier home care or allied health consults. Maybe it's just to help the clinician with deciding inpatient versus outpatient care after their index presentation. Maybe your first step is just to implement a tool and track the prevalence and outcomes of patients who are frail in your department or healthcare center. And I want to mention a very important takeaway about frailty and the assessment of frailty. Frailty tools are screening tools. The intent is not to confirm frailty in people that you already expect are frail. The point is that all adults over 65 years presenting to you in healthcare get screened for frailty so that you can catch those cases that would otherwise slip under the radar. Now, we are caring for an increasingly aged population worldwide, which also means we're going to see more frailty. Part of the hidden message of this presentation is how multifactorial frailty is. So I wanted to mention a quick pet peeve that I hope we can work on together worldwide. You're receiving handover for a patient with frailty or advanced age. Please do not in that handover tolerate or use terms like dyscopia, failure to cope, dwindling. Uh, I'm pretty sure a geriatrician somewhere in the world dies every time an emergency physician tells another colleague about a patient as they carry forward in terms of their care and uses one of these words. Give patients the respect they deserve as they struggle with decreasing uh, dependence or decreasing independence. Their presentation to the emergency or your healthcare center is not for a lack of effort. And let's not have the diagnostic closure and assume there's no medical diagnosis to explain someone's presentation. Even if there isn't an acute illness, maybe we can say that a patient is experiencing increasing frailty at home. Thank you so much, everyone, for your time. I've listed a few resources here. Uh, a couple are papers that I mentioned. Uh, there's also a website here that serves as a library of frailty research specific to COVID. And, and the last thing here is a uh, general geriatric emergency department website with tips on implementation, much of the recent research, and serves as a place to connect with people who are already adapting to the future of healthcare and frailty-aware care. Thank you so much. Okay, Patrick. Well, look, thank you very much for that wonderful, wonderful talk. Uh, so much uh, good stuff uh, that'll help us in our practice. So thank you. Uh, just before we go, Patrick, I, I ask every guest the same question, if you don't mind. I'm going to ask you as well. So if I could take you back on my time machine 
to meet your junior self just exiting medical school, um, what one piece of advice would you give them? What have you gained in your career so far that would be helpful to them starting their career? Oh, and this is going to be a pretty short trip. Uh, we have to remember that I'm only in my, uh, what, second year of full-time practice after residency. So I'm really sorry you've wasted your technology on me. But um, I think if I could go back, even uh, heading through residency, coming out of that into full-time practice, don't bite off more than you can chew. I think as residents, we, we can be, and this depends on your local context, quite protected to pursue activities like research, uh, obviously for your studying, if you're doing your board exam or your Royal College exam, but it's so easy to bite off more than you can chew when you enter practice after that, where you no longer have to do these things. And that may come to the detriment of your ability to do independent study. Like I already miss being able to keep up with, with some of that uh, literature. And that's why free open access medicine is so important. I'd love to have more time to do things like research. So try not to overcommit, understand what your passions are that are outside of clinical practice so that you still have time to carve that into your daily life going forward as an independent clinician. Brilliant. Thank you very much for all those wonderful tips and thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Owen. So many, many thanks again to Patrick for the wonderful lecture and for all his pearls of wisdom. Remember, you can watch this lecture in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Until next time, take care. <laughs>